Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Today I am with Peter Breyer. Peter is an incredible specialist in process operations. Peter, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Michelle, and uh, thank you for having me. 40 years embedded, and by embedded, I mean working directly for owner operators. Yeah, retirement didn't work out that well for me. I'm not suited to it. So since that time, I've been on my own offering accumulated knowledge. I call it generational knowledge. You know, over the course of that many decades, your career changes and evolves a lot. I did begin, as you said, as an operations uh, specialist. But over time, that gradually evolved into a more maintenance-oriented role and in particular with facility turnarounds and major maintenance events. So currently, that's, uh, that's what I do is offer training and mentorship towards successful turnaround events. I don't know if your audience is going to be that familiar with that sector of the industry, but it's a pretty good place to be working in that since about 1959, some companies have been running statistics on these turnaround events worldwide and pretty consistent in all those years, 70% of these events go down in the history books as failures. So there's lots of opportunity for improvement there. So it makes it a pretty stable entry point for myself, I guess. Thanks for that. How did you get started in the energy sector? Well, I was looking when I was very young, I was looking for something to make a career on. Um, I had that kind of a focus at a very young age. And where I was living and grew up, most of the career-oriented work was fiber industry related, so pulp and paper type stuff. I always had a big fascination with operations in general and big machines and processes. But I figured out quite early that if the product stream that you're contributing to can be stored in a warehouse and piled up and stockpiled, then the work that you were involved in could become unstable for, let's call them political reasons, in that if if the company can store their output and backlog it, then the company's also in a position to play hardball with the employee groups. And after a few years of uh, of realizing that you can't really get ahead in life if every couple of years you're either on strike or locked out. I got in my car and drove away from that sector of the country and into uh, this area and switched from a fiber orientation into an energy orientation. Really, when it comes to uh, process operations, the machines, the processes, the excitement of that type of work doesn't really change that much industry to industry. So it was a pretty easy decision for me to move to an industry that had more inherent stability. You can, uh, you can shut down a gas plant the same as you can a pulp mill, but you don't have anything in the warehouse to keep providing your clients with. So your 
negotiations with your workforce, you need to keep that in mind that you, you can't create that kind of driver's seat for yourself. From a social point of view, it was a better industry to be a part of than the, than the fiber-based industry I originally started in. Did you have any role models during your career? and What did you find inspiring about them? Well, when I first when I first moved into the oil and gas industry, I was fortunate in the refinery I started in had a very focused training program and process, and it was tied in with the local college and and my training coordinator on plant site also ended up being my engineering instructor at school. And that individual I would have to admit was extremely formative. I knew what I knew when I came up here what I wanted to do. That was the individual that taught me how to do it. And then, you know, of course I've had several other mentors in the course of time since then, but it's always that one that kicks you off that that becomes the answer when somebody asks you that question. Yeah, it is. I agree. What is your most challenging thing about your current role and how do you handle it? Well, I, I have a, you know, I've always had a bit of a get it done yourself nature and the actual work of a turnaround to be successful is, is extremely collaborative. And in, in fact, you can, when I, when I talk about the 70% of turnarounds worldwide that go down in the history books as, as being a failure, failure to collaborate amongst the turnaround team is often the root cause of those failures. So for me, over the years of forming from deciding to join the industry to getting to where I am now, suppressing that urge to just pick up the wrench and do everything yourself and learning to work collaboratively collaboratively with other team members and learning to accept that that not everybody on your team is going to have precisely your vision but that doesn't necessarily mean that they won't get the the job done so for i guess really the biggest challenge for me is i started out in life somewhat of a loner and uh ended up in life leading high performance turnaround teams which doesn't leave any room for lonerness. So, but I had 40 years to work on that. So it wasn't like I had to make that uh, adjustment instantly either. How does your current role compare to your aspirations as a young boy? Oh, wow. That, you know, people seldom believe me when they ask that question. I, uh, I couldn't be more satisfied. I, I got into industry, as I said in the beginning, very deliberately, very focused. I knew what I was going to do. I went out of my way to put myself in that path. I never, to my recollection, never had a moment's regret. I love the industry and the work as much today as I ever did. And to be in a more senior consulting and advising role on subject matter that I have literally poured my life into, I, I just can't imagine a better outcome. Honestly, Michelle, I, I know that I know to a lot of people's ears, that sounds like blowing smoke and, oh, everybody wants to retire. Everybody hates their work. Well, I, I'm going to have to stand up and be the difference there. I don't ever intend to retire. And there's never been a moment when I hated my work. 
That's really nice. I'm I'm the same actually. Is there anything that you still want to achieve in your career? Well, yeah. So I I do tend to set goals for myself that are intended to be strived for rather than actually achieved. Yeah, if I could achieve anything in in uh, the remaining years or decades I have left, the entire energy and process industry throughout the world suffers from what many of us within the industry would term cyclical amnesia, meaning everything that I learned in 40 years, I actually had the opportunity to learn three times. And even the things that I know 100% how to do 100% right right now are currently being forgotten on active job sites throughout the world. If I was able to do any major change thing, it would be to figure out what drives that and to bring an end to it. Because the amount of money, time and energy that has been wasted in the last 100 years on relearning everything we knew 10 years ago, every 10 years is it's just atrocious. And it's even more atrocious that very nearly every person who works in the industry for any amount of time soon recognizes this exact phenomenon that I'm talking about. And, and I just, it, it's, it's been frustrating to me for decades now that we can all plainly see what's happening. We all have working memories just because some new person comes in at a higher, you know, authority level and doesn't share that memory doesn't mean that we should just just let them go on putting us back to ground zero. So that's that would be my lofty goal, Michelle. And uh, of course, I don't really have a lot of expectation that any one man can solve that. But I do think there's value in continuously highlighting it continuously pointing out to my peers, to the industry, to investor groups even, that many, many of these companies that are currently, you know, a lot of people's great pension hope, your pension, entire pension investment is with them, are, are almost, almost deliberately starting over from zero every 10 years and relearning everything as if they didn't know it in the first place. And this is particularly true in turnarounds. Like we've known since the 50s precisely how to conduct a successful turnaround. Yet 70% of people fail year on year on year on year. Right? Like there's a there's a human factor there. There's a I, I said I used the word deliberate, and that's probably the wrong word. Like deliberate implies conscious intent, but there's something in the nature of the human workforce that on this super highly complex work, unless you do it like, uh, you know, Ames research or NASA with very firm leadership control, then people are almost like choosing not, you, you can't forget things as fast as they appear to be forgetting them. So, so when, when you're proceeding down this next event, completely ignoring everything, you know, about the turnaround process to be successful, like, I know that deliberate's not the right word, but sometimes that's how it feels to me. Okay. I just wondered, in your opinion, what makes an outstanding hire in graduates or seniors? Well, then, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that we've been making a mistake of in our educational systems and, and 
student counseling systems for a long, long time, is the idea that there is such a thing as an ideal hire. It's very specific to the work, right? So like if I'm hiring members, if I'm trying to assemble a high performance turnaround team, then I'm going to even break some of the more standard rules of team development. So if I have the opportunity to staff that team entirely with A-type personalities, then even though every management school on the planet would suggest that would be a very challenging thing for any manager to do to himself, that is precisely what I would do. That is what I did with the last team that I had and the team before that. Because the level of work that I'm trying to drive success to is going to need that type of performance. And because the amount of headcount that the owner is going to allow to do this highly complex work is is going to be considerably less than half the number that would be ideal. You, you need to make sure that no matter how difficult it's going to be for you as the team manager, you need to make sure every person on that team is capable of doing the work of two people. And you only get that by hiring eight personalities. It also can make teams If you don't keep a firm hand, if you don't know what you're doing, the reason why management school advises you not to do that is you can, you can, uh, you can build a team that'll implode on you pretty quickly if you're not, not keeping a firm hold on it. In a way, I think I, I, my response to that is also a response to a symptom. The symptom is I don't know of a corporation that, you know, and these corporations own tens of billions of dollars of these high-end assets. And I don't know of anyone that I've ever worked for or been exposed to that is even coming close to to staffing their turnaround approach. I mean, even to the levels that they they staff regular O&M. So if you know you're chronically going to be working with a very minimal amount of human resources, then your focus needs to be to maximize every individual human in that teeny resource pool. If you had the proper number of employees, if you had the proper headcount, then you could just focus on hiring people that were good at one specific job, right? They wouldn't all have to be superstars. I just wondered, have you ever encountered any career disasters and how did you handle them? Oh, absolutely. Remember that 70% number? Yeah. That means there's very few of us that have ever had the opportunity to even work for a company that is doing it right. So, you know, basically one of the reasons why people don't stick with a turnaround focused career in general in the stubborn way that I have is because you do get used to failing over and over again. There's so many, um, so many variations you cannot control. There's, I mean, there's the headcount issue that I, I previously talked about. There is the complete lack of understanding at the senior leadership levels of what the work even entails. There is, there is other teams and groups telling stories in their own, you know, through their own viewpoint of view that are, that are going to actively at the very least make it a lot more difficult for any turnaround team to succeed because the, the, the types of, inputs coming from the support teams there is the support teams themselves amongst the vast majority of places i've ever worked 
you, you can't do a turn the turnaround team i've never been on a turnaround team that was anywhere close to being big enough to actually do the turnaround by themselves turnaround teams are are supported by seconded members from support teams from the finance team from the procurement team from the health and safety team et cetera et cetera et cetera getting those teams to fully participate in their accountabilities to the turnaround is one of the biggest challenges is that a lot of the times a lot of the times it ends up feeling to the turnaround team that that those people are actually working against success and it's because they don't really want to be involved and because since the end of the 80s serious hierarchical style leadership and management has stopped being a thing and since we don't have serious leadership anymore we are in a work era where regardless of people's job titles they only need to do the portions of their jobs that they feel like doing and there is very little recourse for senior managers who are faced with this because none of the leadership team is going to stand up and and lay it on the line that people have to do their job or they will be dismissed so it, it was an interesting time to be managing in I, I see everything in life is, is cyclical and pendulum swing anyway. And I expect that we're at the very end of this crazy idea of flat line, team directed, leave everybody to their own devices and everybody will rise like cream to the top. I think people have come to realize that there was never any merit to that idealism in the first place, that we cling to it a little bit still. I think because people so much would like it to be true, but I do, I do believe we're reaching the point on the pendulum swing where we're about to admit that if we're going to keep believing in the general hardworking goodness of every independent worker out there without leadership, that we're just going to fail our society. And so I think we will be returning. Unfortunately, the, uh, the return to hierarchical management is likely going to come after it ceases to matter that much for me but i do think that is the next thing that's going to have to happen in industry i think that since the late 80s we've been on a on a bad path industry-wide worldwide there have been a few exceptions there have been a few companies that have stood up and just said this is crazy i don't care how many academic psychologists you have that promote this this is crazy and we're not doing it but that's only been a few it's now now people's bank accounts, now their spends are going to convince them of that because the money they save by getting rid of all their managers and supervisors is a drop in the bucket compared to what it's now costing. Them. Well, you're really, uh, you're really promoting me to rant here, Michelle. <laughs> no, it's okay. That was what I intended to do. I just wondered, what has been your most challenging day in your career? Individual day? Well, around about a time that you found it quite challenging. Well, I think the better way to answer that is more as a group then, because, you know, the events in the turnaround manager's life are, are, well, just too numerous, even within the first hour of the first day. I think the events, though, that, at least for me, that, that when you stand up from your desk and leave your office to go out and, and follow up on a report, it's when that report is suggesting that somebody might have been injured or so, like you know something like that some something in the safety realm has gone wrong 
you know, as the manager, you never get the details. What you get is a vague report and you're jumping up and grabbing your gear and heading out to find out for yourself what's going on. Those are the hard moments. Even once you get there, it gets better because then you know what you're dealing with. It is that period of not knowing. Did somebody get a hangnail or did somebody fall off the scaffold and die? Yeah, I can appreciate that, actually. I just wondered, what is your zone genius? By which? Your zone genius. What are you excellent at? Well, actually, what I'm most excellent at is machines themselves, which is, you know, it helped get me into the turnaround gig, but the actual specialty of operations is 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 closer to what my natural talent is. I I have the right makeup or the right way of thinking or something that makes it relatively easy for me to to assimilate a complex process like an oil refinery and understand all the various different components and how they have to work together in such a way that I can I, I can lead the and start up an operation of those facilities. I, I don't think it's a, it's a very good job and it pays very well. And there's a lot of reasons why a, a lot of reasons why people want to get into that type of operations work, but it is a field where, you know, whether it's socially acceptable or not, I'm just going to say not everybody can just set their mind to becoming a 12 hour shift working process operator and expect to excel at it. And that's just being fair. And it would be more fair to youth if we would start being more honest about that to start with only. And, and, you know, you can step outside of the employment circles and then you can get a little more honesty there. If you, if you talk to psychologists, there's only approximately 2% of the entire workforce that is suited to 24 hour shift operations without it leading to long-term health and psychological consequence. So already the number of people we need to fill these jobs is way more than natural numbers that society produces. Thank you. How would you describe your typical working week? Well, now or for most of my life, I mean, now my typical working week involves this office that I'm sitting in and my office is only like 25 feet from my house. And, and I do most of my work remotely now, unless I'm out on site teaching, but for most of my life, so I'll say the first 30 years when I was directly in operations, I was shift worker. So I worked 12 hour shifts. I worked four days on and six days off is the schedule. And I worked in a chronically understaffed industry. So for right up until I, be, I joined management, I would typically work just under 2000 hours a year in straight time hours. And I would work another 1500 hours a year on overtime hours. So, you know, really when I moved to management and started only working 60 hours a week, it was almost like a, a semi-retirement gig right there. Mm-hmm. And now I'm, uh, well, I try to respect the fact that since I'm collecting a couple pension checks, I must technically be retired. So I'm trying to, trying to consciously make sure that I'm 
keeping my hours down to something reasonable, you know, in the 40 to 50 hour a week range. Sometimes I'm successful at it. Sometimes I'm not. Depends what's on my plate and how exciting it is. Part of the, part of the reason that uh, curtailing my hours of work has always been a challenge for me is because my work is what I like to do. So if the work gets interesting, then, then holding to a 50 hour week doesn't, doesn't really work that well for me. So. <laughs> it sounds like you're really devoted to your work actually, which is well, nice to hear. Well, a person should try to find work that, that interests them that much, really. I think I agree, actually. I agree. It's not available for everybody. And it, and it doesn't, it doesn't ever come accidentally to anybody. I don't think it's, you, you do need to be thinking about it at a young age and you do need to have a focus and you do need to accept, right? That it could take to get to the actual point. Like this is the point where I want to be, but it did take me decades to get here. But along the way, because the field I chose, I was, I was enjoying every bit of it all the way along. So it's all worked out good for me. I'm hopeful that young people can all find that, right? Yeah, I hope so too. I hope so too. I just wondered, do you delegate any work? Yeah, so that actually ties back to an earlier question when you were asking, like, what were my biggest mm. challenges? So that yeah. actually is the word I should have used in my answer. That learning to delegate. You aren't really a senior manager if you're not delegating, right? If you're, if you're doing your work, doing all the work, that's not managing. That's, that's the role of a senior specialist. And I went into management after many, many years as a senior specialist. And that's what I was mentioning earlier. It's in my nature to be more of that senior specialist role. So the challenge for me developmental wise, personal development wise, was to learn to let go, learn to A, recruit the people I need. You know, if you can't, if you don't trust your team members to be delegating the work you hired them to do, then maybe you hired the wrong team members. And that also ties into what I was saying that no matter how painful it might work out to be when you, when you want to hire six people for a team that should have 26 people on it, you need to hire very, very high end a personality types. And once you've done that, they're going to be pretty insistent about that delegation factor. In fact, they're going to be quite defensive about the work that that they now see as their work. If on the other hand, you've hired a lot of people that are super easy to manage, then you might end up having trust issues with your delegation, might you? Mm -hmm. The people might be easy to manage, but they if they don't have the high level of expertise that you need the work done to, then again, you've made you've actually created a team, but you're not really a manager because now you're doing all the work. You have a team and they they hang around and collect paychecks. And they contribute in small ways, but in all the key work, you can't delegate it to them because, you know, they're an easy team to manage, but they're not the team that you needed. Okay. So, and it depends what kind of, you know, these, these types of things like uh, facility turnarounds and, and dynamic brownfield project work, again, are not necessarily for everybody, right? Uh, it's what, whether you're on a team like that, which I was for most of my career, or running a team like that, which I did for the last 10 years of my career, it's a lot of, you know, the modern 
social chat about work-life balance and a person should do this and a person should do that. It doesn't really apply to this kind of work. You, you can't really apply it. If you create a turnaround team whose primary focus is work-life balance instead of turnarounds, then, then possibly you might be, you might be creating a team that's going to make that 70% start creeping up towards 75% because turnaround and, and this type of brownfield, when you're, when you're doing major maintenance activities in live process facilities, if your focus is not a hundred percent on the work, somebody is, you know, one of those terrible calls is going to go back to the manager office and it is going to be because somebody is dead. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to slack modern societal ideals or anything. That's all fine for the people that want that. And that's their priority. But to, to assume that every kind of work on the planet can be put to the knife of work-life balance, that's, that's a false assumption. There's, okay. there's lots of different types of work and, and, you know, really way above, way above the type of work I do even. It's like, you know, the brownfield event management, the turnaround management thing, that, that is pretty high level work, but there's work even above that. And, and the same thing's going to apply to that, that you won't be successful if your team is work to rule, right? It's not everything in life can be applied, the work to rule, work life balance scale and still be successful. And I know that's very offensive to some people and, and that's okay. But to those people, what I would like to say is, is their ideals don't offend me. So. I can apologize that my ideals might offend those people, but I do want to point out their ideals don't offend me. So there isn't any reason for them to be offended by my ideals. Everything's cyclical. Everything's a, everything's a pendulum swing. Everywhere we're at right now is going to be washed away and we are going to go back the other way. So I think so too. I've got my closing question now. If you could turn back time, would you change anything? About my career, you mean? Yeah. If I was going to do it differently, I might have changed the way I went about transitioning into management roles. I was quite focused on the type of work I wanted to do, and I wanted to be able to transition directly into that role, which is a middle to senior management role. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to, you know, take roles off the path. You know, the normal path in, in the area I'm in would have been to take a coordinator role and then to develop the coordinator role into a supervisory role and then into a team lead role and then into a manager role. All of those roles though would have been outside of the actual work that I was wanting to be doing. So what there was in in the turnaround type work is there's always a high, high demand for willing people at the subject matter expert level so so coordinators and people like that so i spent many many years doing turnarounds out on the ground just gaining very very specialized experience until such time as as i could get directly into a turnaround management role so by doing that that meant i entered management from a chronological point of view what what management careerists would consider quite late. But I wasn't really a management careerist anyway. I wanted to manage these events. 
Whereas a management careerist doesn't really care what they're managing. They just want to, you know, I think most of them dream one day of being a C-suiter. And that wasn't my focus at all. But because it wasn't my focus, I probably would have been better served if I'd have blended in a little bit more of the what's more perceived as the normal route, right? You know, take those entry levels, management roles and supervisory roles and, and go to the golf clubs and go to the parties and develop the social side of the work instead of being 100% focused on the technical side of the work. So I would say, and I, you know, again, like I said earlier, I honestly have no regrets about where I am and where I'm sitting right now. But I am, in answering your question, I am admitting that, you know, I could have probably expected to retire at, at higher management levels if I had a allowed myself to play the game by the rules that everybody else plays it by if that if that makes clarity yeah that makes sense well that's all the questions i have today i would like to thank peter for your time That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.